The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, September 21st, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The reaction to Donald Trump's threats and rocket man Barb specifically continue to roll in. The top North Korean diplomat, which is like the top Mormon sommelier, but this guy was asked about rocket man. I will translate. Mr. Trump called a Kim Jong rocket boy. How did you respond? How is your response? I pity his advisors, the diplomat said. Though, did you hear the question? He wasn't asked about Rocket Man. The questioner said he called him Rocket Boy. No, it's Rocket Man. I knew the whole thing would get lost in translation. Ever since Elton John released Mad Man Across the Water, he has been persona non grata to the Kim family. They take it as a big insult, obvs. Not all about you, Kims. But there was another quote from North Korea's foreign minister, Ri Young. He said, there is a saying that the marching goes on even when the dog barks. That was according to South Korea's Yonhap news agency. Didn't make sense to me, but I saw a better translation, which went like this. Even when the dogs bark, the parade goes on. Okay, the parade rather than the marching, which in North Korea has a lot of resonance. And then Mr. Ri went on to say, quote, if Trump intended to scare us with the sound of a dog barking, then he is clearly dreaming which makes sense but isn't such a pithy zinger until you read the better translation. Quote, if he was thinking he could scare us with the sound of a dog barking, that's really a dog dream. In Korea, a dog dream is a dream that makes little sense. Ah, now I get it. But do dog dreams really make little sense? I always pictured them dreaming about chasing the chuck wagon and barking at the milkman and Licking oneself to the break of day. I assume that's what dogs dream about. What are they going to dream about? Showing up to school with no pants on? Of course they have no pants on. They're dogs. All of this lost in translation, quote unquote, diplomacy, served to underscore Nikki Haley's point. She was talking to George Stephanopoulos. You think it's appropriate to use a term like rocket man to talk about a leader of another country who's got nuclear weapons? Well, I'll tell you, George, it worked. It worked? It worked? It worked The North Koreans have given up their nuclear weapons. They agreed to negotiate. They're letting in weapons inspectors. It worked. Oh, no, that is not what Nikki Haley is using to mean worked. I will tell you that, look, this is a way of like, you know, getting people to talk about him. But every other international community now is referring to him as Rocket Man. Yep. This is the Trump administration. A policy that worked is defined as one that got a lot of attention, that people talked about, that hung a nickname on a guy and called it progress. On the show today, I spiel about why democracy is actually exacerbating an international tragedy. But first, Dylan Moran, Irish comedian, Scottish resident, American visitor, and now just guest.
Dylan Moran is one of the world's most successful comics. He's sort of a world comedian. You know the genre of music, world music, which to me was always a poorly named genre, as in what music wouldn't constitute world music. But what I mean by that phrase about Dylan Moran is he talks about everything that's going on in the world. He talks specifically about geopolitics, and he plays places around the world. So not only is he popping off from his native Ireland or Scotland, where he lives now, he's actually seeing this firsthand. In fact, Dylan's touring the U.S. with his new show Grumbling Mustard, playing New York, D.C., Chicago, Boston, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Austin, New Orleans. I probably left out a city. Hello, Dylan. How are you? Hey, Mike. Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Now, Grumbling Mustard, I understand grumbling about mustard, but uh, is grumbling is grumbling an adjective or a gerund in this phrase? <laughs> no, I, you need to see the show to, to understand that very, very small mystery, but it was just a thought about uh, being up late, it's about how things look when you're up late at night. Mm-hmm. How do you name? How do you name your shows? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's actually that's sorry, I'm laughing because that's actually ridiculous. It's ridiculously difficult to name a show because you don't know what it is, you know. Yeah. Uh, until um, until you've been messing around with it for quite a while, so I don't know. It's totally random, you know. And then none of them sound right, and then so you end up so you go, ah, gee, just call it that. I don't know. How does anybody name anything? How well, do you name a salad? Well, Louis, uh, the if your if your name is Caesar and you live in Mexico, the, that comes to you. If you're at the Waldorf Astoria, then that's an obvious one. But you're you're right. I don't understand Cobb, but uh, what Louis's been doing with his shows is just naming it after the year, which has its pluses and minuses. Yeah, that's a little stark. That's like, you know, an yeah. annual, a bit of sort of like a Stalinist uh, annual <laughs> grain report on what they managed to <laughs> I was thinking more like year. I was thinking more like Led Zeppelin 1, Led Zeppelin 2, but yeah, yes. Stalinist grain report is also uh, a genre that it evokes. Yeah, there's just something a little, um, I don't know, monumental about it. How much, I know you've played the U.S. before, but have you played places like uh, Des Moines and St. Louis before? I've been to places like uh, Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I have, I have, uh, I have played in in the middle of America somewhat, and um, you really kind of only begin to understand America as a European when you go to places where people don't necessarily go on holiday. You know, when they when they come to America, you need to, need to go through America to kind of get it. I've seen your stand-up where you play before European crowds and you talk about Americans, um, overfed Americans, American tourists, and actually you set that up to talk about a different kind of Americans who are, you know, maybe lithe and beautiful and you kind of don't understand them. You see them in museums blocking up the exhibits, going, what is this? Can we eat it? Where are we? Can we pee? (laughs) And yet when you go to America, you see that it's a very, very, uh, because it's so competitive and everything, people are ultra-fashionable and very thin, really. I think the Americans you see in Europe are all the ones who stay in their apartments, get food piped in, and then they're just shipped out to, to Europe. And, <laughs> but the ones over there, you see these amazing-looking people. They don't look real at all, these incredibly exiguous women. You know those people who look like they can't support the weight of their own teeth in their head? <laughs> Would you temper your broad stereotypes of Americans to an American audience? No, I wouldn't do that really for anywhere, anyone anywhere because the whole point is to talk about how we see each other, you know, for, for the purposes of that kind of material. It's all about, you know, why do we have these stereotypes about one another? You know, how, how did that start? The American fascination with, say, things like Downton Abbey is hilarious to me as an Irish guy because... You know, all that stuff is the stuff we grew up laughing about, about the, the English, you know, about their ridiculous um, 
you know, all the meals they invent. <laughs> like, oh, you know, everybody stop. It's half four. It's time we had scunions. What are you talking about? <laughs> what is this stuff? And then they get, uh, you know, half a pigeon and wrap it in a scone. <laughs> all this stuff, these rituals that were part of the empire that we found hilarious in and, Ireland. And, and um, everything's a pudding also. Stop with the puddings. There's a lot of puddings. Puddings with really terrible names like spotted dick or, you know, flayed torso. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the gastropub pudding. But I have seen you do stand-up where, yeah, a large percentage of it is, let's try to understand each other. But you get laughs by saying American tourists crowding around some tourist attraction saying, well, can we eat it? Just talking about their girth. Sure. You talk about everything and you use anything and everything wherever you are. You're also poking fun at people and their own, you know, what they're sensitive about or what they're hung up about, you know, the same way that I would about myself, I hope. Yes. But you pivot off of that specific joke that you did maybe even 10 years ago. And you used a word that I looked up, exiguous. Uh, You were talking about some of these other Americans who you don't see as tourists in Europe and they're exiguous, meaning very small in size or amount. And my jaw hit the floor. I have never, I'd never heard the word. I'd never seen a comedian going for a word that I would assume the majority of his audience would not understand, unless I'm wrong. And this is a much more common word wherever you were playing than I no, think it I, is. Th- that's not, not, I don't really think of language in those terms because the, the I know what you're saying. I mean, look, if somebody is on stage and they use, you know, like a word that sort of stands out yes. for any reason. You want to know, well, what is the reason? And so I go for, you know, we use words like that every now and again, partly because they do stop your mind just sort of trundling along, you know, at that sort of pace. So there's this guy talking about this stuff. and So, so it makes you, it, still, it does make you wake up somewhat. And also, it's just because there's particular words that just jump out at me. I, I, I love them. I think of words as being, you know, they're living things as far as I'm concerned. They've got their own texture and look and feel about them. And I just thought exiguous is a terrific word. It's great. And in the context of how you do the joke, I think you evoke a, a little bit of a pose. And it's quite yeah, exactly, clear exactly. what you're saying. And it complements instead of speaks down to the audience. Can you think of another, uh, the, uh, sorry, can you think of another word that you've used that uh, rivals Yeah, sure. But the first thing I want to say is I would never talk down to an audience. I mean, I don't know why any more than I would talk up to them. You know, you got to speak out from the middle of yourself to the middle of the person you're talking to. Absolutely. It's the only way to to get around. In terms of other words, um, nivius, nivius for white is a, is, a, is a word I always thought was really funny. Uh, <laughs> oh God, can we come back to that? Yeah. There's, there's just loads. There's loads and loads. You just said something about not talking down or up, speaking from your gut, but the who you are. I didn't say gut. I said middle. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, sorry, but talking from the gut's got a bad reputation because oh, I see. In, in in light of recent presidents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talking talking from you know in a in a way that's both authentic to yourself and not pandering in either direction or putting on airs. But I would have to say that what I understand how you grew up, how a lot of Irish people grow up where the language is so important it's a little bit different for someone who was raised where conversation was so prized. And when were you Irishmen to speak broadly, and I find that national stereotypes are okay if they're very complimentary, you're so, <laughs> you're, you're so proficient with the language that it can be both totally honest and not putting on airs and yet a brilliant performance. Yeah, I think performance is the key word there in what you're just saying. The, the just, now let's go back a second. The thing about 
you know, w- when you're talking to people, you've got to be direct and honest and just speak to them, you know, without thinking about it too much. Is is it's not quite the same as talking from 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 the gut. People always say talk about talking from the gut, like you know, they say it as they see it, they call it as it is. Usually, or often, indeed, when they're when they're saying something truly terrible, so they're not really talking from their gut; they're right. talking from their lower intestine. Right. But in in terms of the performance of people standing around and talking in Ireland, this is, I'm not kidding. You'll think I'm joking when I say this, but I'm not. I think one of the big factors for that was it was free. It was in terms of you know people being entertained and passing their time. Mm-hmm. It became, it did develop into a, an art. I think you can, I can definitely see why people would think of it as an art. Street talk as an art. And it's kind of hard to explain that to people of a certain generation, obviously now, because you have 20 machines around you that can do all, you know, offer you all kinds of interesting um, distraction. But talking was, that's what I remember growing up. People stood on the street, they talked, the weather changed, and they were still there talking. You know, it became evening, they were still talking. Mm-hmm. And they were good at it. They were really good at it. And it was it was a kind of performance, you're right. It's almost like, a you know, they had talk-offs in front of one another <laughs> instead of dance-offs. So when was the last time you played Russia? Oh, I haven't been to Russia in a couple of years. Um, the last time I went, I found it very difficult because I had watched a lot of uh, Russian... Uh, media and news, and I was just getting a sort of, um, I don't know, some sort of terrible um, syndrome was happening in my in my head, the disjunct between what I was hearing in, in the news uh, compared to the American news and compared to reality and compared to bouncing around in that triangle of, you know, what I could observe and what one side of the media world was saying and what the Russians were saying was extraordinary. It's a job of work processing your news. So what you get, in effect, is a, a populace that really puts a lot of space between it and the government because they just cannot be bothered to wade through all the crap. Yeah. It's cynicism as a defense mechanism, and that probably wouldn't be good for a truth-telling comic. Well, it's never mind the comics. It's just terrible for a society. You right. know, I mean, the comics, what's happening in, in, uh, in Britain and across Europe a lot, somebody said it, I can't remember who, said, you know things are bad when everybody's laughing at the politicians and, and, and listening to the comics. Maybe they, maybe an American has said it, I don't know. That's happening all over Europe because of this, uh, this rise of the right. So comics have come, come to be seen as, you know, just a kind of a voice of sanity a lot of the time. Uh, so when you played Russia, you do a joke about how Vladimir Putin looks like he was cloned from a dead shark. Did did you yeah. do Putin humor there? Was it well received? Yeah, I did Putin jokes when I was there. And they, I have to say that I, I came to America shortly after uh, doing uh, some gigs in Russia. And I did uh, I did a TV show. And I, I thought that the it was very funny because I'd just come in from Russia. And I thought that the in a way, America was much more restrictive in, in what it said in terms of censorship. Mm-hmm. Like, do this, don't do that, make sure you don't say that, you know, that kind of thing. Make sure you stick to your minutes. It was much more sort of free and easy, seemingly, in, in, in Russia. But, uh, you know, it, it's free and easy as long as it doesn't interfere with anything that the government want to pursue or want to protect or want you to shut up about. Then it's a different story. Um, in Ireland, there's your Taoiseach. Taoiseach? Taoiseach? Well done. Very good. Yes, yes, Very good. yes. He's your leader. What an interesting figure. Yeah. Leo uh, Varadkar, is that it? That's there or thereabouts, yeah. yeah, yeah. You do and, as well as I would. And so what's interesting about him is uh, he's gay, he's of Indian parentage, but also, for Ireland, fairly conservative. So I've read a lot of editorials like, look, 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 we celebrate the fact that he's these things, but we don't necessarily like what he's going to do to our country. So he, And then he himself, you know, holds himself up as, I am proof that racism's over. Sort of 
to me, what the racist's idea of racist being over is. I'm not charging Mr. Varadkar with that, but that is something a racist would really get behind. What is your take on him? To be honest with you, I mean, this is a, it's very interesting the way you put it because you've got, you know, you grew up in America, you grow up, you know, you're steeped in race politics. Yeah, yeah. Now, I tell you, growing up in Ireland, you're not steeped in race politics because when I was a kid, you know, you look around and for as far as the eye can see, there's a bunch of just, you know, mildly overweight white Catholics and they're everywhere, okay? They're in the trees, they're in the hills, they're underground. I mean, there's nowhere to go to get away from white Catholics. That's all we've got. And then I moved away when I was about 20 and um, a few years later, the country quite literally transformed in a very, very short space of time. And we suddenly had a mixed society where you'd see, and then a few years later you'd see kids of colour walking down with white kids and they're all, you know, coming from school and they're chatting away, all talking in broad North Dublin accents, which you'd know here from movies like The Commitments and things like that. Um, and it was f- 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 trippy and fantastic and a great thing to see. And I was really relieved that I, you know, it, I knew it would come one day, but I didn't know it would happen like that. So I kind of get where the Irish current Irish Taoiseach is coming from when he says that it's proof that it's all over because it was a big, it was a very big deal in Ireland. It was a very, I was delighted and I think an awful lot of people were to get somebody who was, you know, looked a bit different to the majority of the population and happened to be, you know, a young guy under 40 and happened to be gay it was, you know, very positive um, for this you know, just thinking of Ireland as a European country, it was a very good thing to happen and, and long overdue. So to be honest with you, from my point of view, him saying it's all over now, it's all fine. I can understand why he'd say it. He's wrong, of course, yeah. as you point out, but I can see where he's coming from. Do you think that there is a way that satire works to puncture politicians in a way that it doesn't? Maybe both are amusing, but one that's effective and one that isn't? To you mean puncture politicians? What their agenda or well, their personalities? To or what? really, to really bring them down, to really hurt them, to actually. I think that's change. possible. Yeah. I think that's possible. I mean, I think the thing is, like, their job is different. They have to articulate in an interesting, funny way what everybody knows. Anyway, you could be ten years old, you could be six years old, and you know, you look at the current American president and know something's deeply wrong. Yes, you know, everybody knows that. The comic has to do something else. Has to take it from there. Where do you take that? Um, can they bring somebody down? Well, you know, I think with this in this case, it's just about possible that they might actually because he's such a completely, uh, he cannot govern himself. He's, uh, he is a textbook example of, you know, uh, narcissism just before, um, I don't know, can you die from narcissism? He, I think he must look like what happens just before you die from narcissism. And he's so thin-skinned and reactive and impulsive and frankly, very, very stupid. I can imagine it might actually make a big dent in his presidency. Right. Now, I have one final question. This is just my attempt to be Barbara Walters. And it's a visual, so I commend our listeners to uh, the internet to understand what I'm saying. But it's this. As your hair has stayed the same throughout your career, how has its meaning changed? (laughs) Well, you know, my hair has its own agent, and uh, (laughs) I'm not allowed to answer questions on behalf of my hair. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. Uh, Dylan Moran is touring around our country with grumbling mustard. Thank you so much for your time, Dylan. Thanks a lot, Mike.
And now the spiel. The biggest problem with democracy is the whole democracy part. Look, if you want to believe in your flat earth, anti-vax, global warming denialism, Bible is the literal word of God, have at it. I happen to think Creator, starring Peter O'Toole and Vincent Spano, is a great movie. That shouldn't bother you. But because we're living in a GD democracy, your opinions on those issues become my lived reality. I just read Kurt Anderson's new book about the rich history of American whack jobs, which is to say a huge portion of American society, the A-Factual Demo. And Anderson actually named a chapter after a Thomas Jefferson quote. I hadn't heard the quote before. In the quote, Jefferson's talking about religion, but he could be talking about any belief that he finds absurd that is absurd. And he said, it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no God. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. And for years, I believed that. Without even knowing the quote, I was living by it. I'd like to convince the A-factual of fact. But live and let live, I say. You know, isn't it grand that there are all these pockets of eccentricity out there and that Louis Theroux can do a premium cable series on them and that I could watch it? But I probably won't. It'll just be in my queue. Lately, though, we have had in this country an inversion between the pocket of eccentricity and the cloak of society. We're all inside out. But in general, up until now, the guy in the White House, things have generally worked out because of democracy, right? Well, I don't know. Sometimes I think in spite of it. Democracy definitely seems very good at limiting the worst excesses of man, and especially it's a good limitation on those excesses over time. I mean, I could believe, I could buy that some really good kings or far-seeing autocrats or benevolent despots are better than some democratically elected leaders. It's just that generation after generation, you're asking yourself for trouble if you go in for a model other than democracy. A long-lived democracy will almost always certainly deliver more than an autocracy. Though, you know, there are different counterexamples. Kenya's been democratic for more than 50 years. Singapore has been autocratic this whole time. Singapore has delivered more for its people than Kenya has. In our country, the state of Alabama is going to go from one senator who was hard, hard right on immigration and it got the worst ratings on civil rights, it's going to go from him to his replacement, it looks like, who's those things, but also a flat-out religious loon. Is that something democracy could have prevented? Is that something democracy could have stopped? No, it is literally something democracy caused. If anyone else got to pick who would be Alabama's senators, besides the people from Alabama, that person, whoever it is, would not pick those guys. Even Donald Trump, who I was clearly evoking in my pocket of eccentricity example, even he is supporting Luther Strong, but Big Luther is trailing Judge Roy Moore in the polls in Alabama. No one but the people of Alabama would pick Jeff Sessions or Roy Moore to be their representatives, it seems to me. So I guess you know where this is going. Myanmar. All roads lead to Myanmar. What's going on there is that the UN has described it as ethnic cleansing. Other human rights activists go so far as to describe it as genocide. Maybe that overstates it, though the Rohingya people are being driven out of Burma. Perhaps you could say they're removing themselves from Burma at the point of a threat. They've clashed with uh, Burmese forces. They're flooding into Bangladesh. And the world is looking to Aung San Suu Kyi to do something about it, to at least say something about it. 
Aung San Suu Kyi won a Nobel Prize for crying out loud. She brought democracy to Myanmar, and now she can't speak up for the Rohingya? No, she cannot. Because what did she bring? She brought democracy. And democracy, while it's not what's causing this conflict, the Myanmar junta persecuted the Rohingya too, but democracy certainly is keeping Aung San Suu Kyi quiet. Democracy is not like we know it here. It's circumscribed in Myanmar. The military has a quarter of the seats in parliament, and it has the levers of a lot of uh, their society. It's probably more important than what we consider the democratic institutions. They're very powerful. So, and Aung San Suu Kyi knows that. Suu Kyi also has a constituency, and they're nationalistic, and she has priorities, and she has to execute a balancing act. Desmond Tutu, Muhammad Yunus, the Dalai Lama, They've all called upon Suu Kyi to speak out. Well, those men are all Nobel Peace Prize winners themselves. They were all selected to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Selected, not elected. It's right to worry from afar, as we do, but it's also easy to weigh in on what Aung San Suu Kyi should do if you're not taking into account her restrictions, her goals, her limitations, and perhaps a long-term strategy. Pragmatism and compromise are the hallmarks of democracy. We celebrate them. But depending on your lens, pragmatism and compromise can also look a lot like selling out your ideals and acting unheroically. An editorial in, of all places, the Global Times, which is the English language arm of the Chinese People's Daily, was actually poetic on this issue. I'll end with the quote. Myanmar's human rights reality is unlikely to be in line with the Western concept. Neither does Suu Kyi's halo comply with her governing. The mismatch is not her fault. And it says this line. It's fair to say that Myanmar is a heaven for saints who rebel and a graveyard for those who govern. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Daniel Schrader, who knows that a jammed hamster wheel doesn't thwart a regatta. Mary Wilson, just producer, is a keen believer in the old adage that the bleating of a lamb has no bearing on the steering of the trolley. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, says to always remember this, the panda may burp and the wolverine may vomit, but that is of no consequence to the 633 train to New Haven. The gist. Ah, those words. Sometimes the iguana will chortle. Sometimes... The llama will harumph. But Limp Biscuit's greatest hits will always suck. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.